Welcome to another edition of Simplifying the Sod. A question came up, driving home, person has to use the restroom. The only place to stop is McDonald's or Burger King. And he's wondering, can I go into the McDonald's? Can I go into the Burger King to use the restroom? And there are two possible issues that come up. There's a concept of chashad, suspicion, and another concept which we're familiar with called ma'arit ayin, but we may not fully understand. Chashad, suspicion, relating to going into the Burger King or the McDonald's, means that my walking in may get someone to think and say, oh, David went into McDonald's for a Big Mac, or he went into Burger King for a Whopper. And that would be them accusing me of something. The second ma'arit ayin would would really be where they see me walking into McDonald's or Burger King and they say, oh, if the rabbi is going into McDonald's or Burger King, it must be okay to eat in McDonald's and Burger King. It must be kosher. And because of that, I would have to avoid going in. But the question is, is that true? Do I have to not go to the restroom and use the restroom? Uh, If I have to use the restroom, what do I do? So it really extends much beyond that. It extends in how we look at things in Judaism. And isn't there a requirement to judge another person favorably? We begin this week's Perashah with the words, Ele Pikudeh. These are the accountings of the Mishkan. Mishkan ha'edut asher pakad api Moshe. And the Midrash asks, why was there a need for Moshe Rabbeinu to make an accounting of the materials in the Mishkan? We know that Hashem describes Moshe <coughs> as ne'eman bekoldeti, as the faithful, trustworthy in all my house. If Hashem is saying that the trustworthy guy is Moshe, why would Moshe need to prove to everyone that he's not? I remember years ago I wrote that maybe the possibility is Moshe was doing this because he wanted to make sure that no one would accuse anybody else. No one would accuse the people working on the Mishkan. Betzalel, Aholiav, all the craftspeople, that they may have uh, stuck some gold in their pockets or some of the silver or some of the... The, the fine fabrics, the techelet, the argaman. And in order to protect them, he does the accounting because anytime you're involved in a public endeavor, it's important to do an accounting. But the Midrash continues and says, unfortunately, what happened is people did suspect Moshe. It says the letzim, the gossipers, the scoffers, was speaking badly about him. As Moshe walked by, one was saying, look how fat his neck is. And his friend responded, what do you expect from the person who's in charge of the Mishkan? They were suspicious that Moshe gained wealth and inferred that he stole from the donations to the Mishkan. And the rabbis tell us, when Moshe Rabbeinu heard this, he immediately made an accounting of the materials to show nothing was missing. It's interesting also, the accounting wasn't made by Moshe Rabbeinu.
he had the Levi'im do, so to say, an independent, an independent accounting to show that everything was proper. <clears throat> now we have to wonder, if Hashem says that Moshe is the most trusted in his household, why does Moshe have to worry about the scoffers? And if their accusations were worthy of the rabbis recording them, what, what, what's going on here? And where did they get this idea that Moshe must have gained his wealth from the Mishkan? It's important to remember that when B'nai Israel left Egypt, they went each to their Egyptian neighbors and they, so to say, borrowed from them. They took things. And those things weren't going to get returned. At the time when Bnei Israel was borrowing, what was Moshe Rabbeinu doing? Moshe Rabbeinu was retrieving the coffin of Yosef HaSadiq. Everyone else was dealing with the money, and he was getting the coffin. In addition, we saw that when the Egyptians died, after the splitting of the sea, the people also gathered more wealth. Moshe was involved in taking care of the people. And so the people assumed Moshe had nothing. But what happened is after Moshe, he smashed the first luchot, the first tablets, and he begged for forgiveness for B'nai Israel. Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, Pesol Lecha, carve out for yourself. And the rabbis tell us that Moshe carved out the Luchot, the second Luchot, out of sapphire. And there was a quarry of sapphire for him to carve it out of. And Hashem told him, Pesol Lecha, everything that you carve out, everything left over, is for you. So Moshe at that point had a huge, huge collection of sapphire, which would make him very wealthy. So B'nai Israel maybe didn't realize that this is what happened, and they therefore accused Moshe of taking from the Mishkan. <coughs> we see how far scoffing can go. Even someone that might be a righteous person, he's causing a lot, a lot of trouble. And Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to stop this trouble, and therefore he arranges for the accounting. It's interesting that the Gemara tells us that there was a certain Roman who went to Rabbi Yochanan, and he did his own accounting based on the verses in the Torah, and said, you see, Moshe Rabbeinu, or Moshe, your Moshe, he's a thief. And Rabbi Yochanan had to sit down and go over point by point to show him that he misunderstood. But we also see that there were a couple of occasions when Moshe became concerned. One is the accounting on the gold is not so great. And the rabbis tell us that, that, that it's interesting that the people who would complain are not the people who give the gold. The big donors know who they're giving to. It's the small donors who want to have a big mouth, who say, hey, maybe he took something. The other interesting thing is when he took the silver from the Machasita Shekel, which went towards the sockets, which supported 
the posts of the Mishkan. There were a hundred sockets. Each socket weighed one kikar. So there's a hundred kikar of, of silver relating to 600,000 half shekel. And then we had a little more because there were another 3,000 or so people. He wondered what happened to that silver. And Moshe forgot that it was in fact used for the hooks that connected the, uh, the tapestries one to another. And the Midrash tells us that the hooks started singing to remind Moshe that they were there. So it wasn't such a simple thing. It wasn't simple at all. But Moshe Rabbeinu was abiding by something that he himself said. If we remember the story of Reuven and Gad, what happened? Later on we see Reuven and Gad come to Moshe Rabbeinu before the nation's ready to go into the land. And they say to Moshe, listen Moshe, we have lots of, uh, of sheep, we have lots of flocks, we have lots of cattle. Let us stay on this side of the Jordan where we can take care of our, our, our cattle because there's a lot of grass here on this side of the Jordan. And Moshe Rabbeinu is upset with them. And he says to them, should your countrymen go and fight and you're going to stay here? And they say, no. They say, we're not going to return into our homes until every one of B'nai Israel receives his inheritance. And we see that B'nai Reuven, B'nai Gad, what do they do? Not only do they lead the army and they fight for the seven years of the conquest, they remain for the seven years of the division of the land. And Moshe Rabbeinu tells them, when the land is then conquered before Hashem, you could return. And he tells them you could return free of any obligation before Hashem and in Israel. And the words are used are, are the hitem nekiim. You shall be innocent in the eyes of God and the eyes of Israel. And this statement, the hitem nekiim, you should be clean in the eyes of God and the eyes of Israel, is what Moshe Rabbeinu is using. Of course Hashem knows, Bechol Beti, in all my house, it's Moshe that's truthful. It's Moshe that's Ne'eman. But Moshe wants to make sure that he also appears in the eyes of Bnei Israel also as truthful. We know <coughs> that the rabbis tell us that the halacha, based on this, was when the person went in to collect the coins from the chamber in the Bet Hamikdash, he was forbidden to wear a cloak that had a hem. Because what could happen? A hem or pockets? Someone could stick the coins in the hem or the pockets. He was forbidden to wear shoes because maybe someone could sneak some coins into the shoes. He was even forbidden to wear tefillin because chas v'shalom, he would hollow out the tefillin to be able to hide the coins within the tefillin. Not only that, the Tosefta goes on and says when he went in, they would talk to him the whole time. Why would they talk to him? You think to keep his mind from stealing? No, they would talk to him to make sure he couldn't hide any coins in his mouth. This is how far they went in order to make sure no one would suspect the person going in of taking anything. There was no way he could do it, so there could be no gossip to grow from it. No one could suspect, no one could do bad. <clears throat> the rabbis teach us in the Gemara of two families who were involved in the in the Bet HaMikdash. And the Gemara could be found <coughs> in Yoma 
on page 38. The rabbis taught in Ebraita, the bakers of the house of Garmu, Bet Garmu, they were expert in the preparation of the lechem hapanim, the showbread. But they didn't want to teach anyone else how to make the bread. And the rabbis got angry with them. And they said, they said, you know what? We can't have this. They're not willing to share their knowledge. So they brought special craftsmen from Alexandria in Egypt. That was a large city where there were many experts. And those craftsmen knew how to bake bread exactly like the members of Bet Garmu. But they didn't know how to remove the bread from the oven like Bet Garmu. And because it was baked in a complex shape, it was difficult to place in the oven and remove it without breaking. In addition, the, the Gemara says that their bread, the bread of the Alexandrians, became moldy over the course of the week, while the bread of the Bet Garmu didn't become moldy. When the, when the rabbis saw this, they realized that it was more important for the glory of Hashem and so they went to the house of Bet Garmu and they said, please come back and bake the bread for us. And Bet Garmu said, no. And they said, we'll double your wages. So Bet Garmu returned. So the rabbi said to them, they must have realized at that point that Hashem wanted Bet Garmu to be the ones to bake the bread. And Hashem is in charge of everything. And he arranged it so they could try to find someone else. But in fact, Bet Garmu, for some reason was to have their salary doubled. And what was the merit of Bet Garbu? And the rabbi said, tell us, why isn't it, why is it that you won't reveal how you bake the bread? And they said we were concerned because we knew from our fathers that the Bet HaMikdash one day is going to be destroyed. And we were concerned that an unworthy person will learn our skill and he'll engage in idolatry with that skill, baking this bread for Avodah Zarah. So we wanted to attempt to prevent the skill from spreading beyond the family. And therefore they're mentioned favorably. But more important, the rabbis tell us, that never was fine flour found in the hands of their descendants. They only baked their bread with coarse bran mixed into everything they did. Basically, you could say, instead of eating white bread, they ate pumpernickel. And why? So no one would ever accuse them. No one would ever think that they took from the, the flour of the Bet HaMikdash or what they learned from the Bet HaMikdash for their own personal, personal sake. There's a similar story told in the same page of the Gemara about the craftsmen of the Bet of Tinas, of the house of Avtinas. They didn't want to teach the secret of making the ketoret. That's what they did. They were the ones responsible for making the ketoret, mixing the ketoret. And so the rabbis again went and found craftsmen, people in Alexandria and Egypt and brought them and they could mix the ketoret exactly like Bet Avtinas. But there was a problem. When Bet Avtinas burned the ketoret, or when the ketoret was burned from when it was mixed by Bet Avtinas, the smoke would go up in a single straight column. When the ketoret of the Alexandrians, even though it smelled exactly the same, the smoke would go to the left and the right and would fill the room. And so the rabbis came to Bet Atinas and they said, please come back and please do your job. And they said, no. And the rabbis doubled their salary and they came back and they asked them, why didn't you? And they said pretty much the same answer. We heard that the Bet HaMikdash was going to be destroyed in the future, and we didn't want anyone to have knowledge to offer the Ketoret to Avodah Zarah. 
<coughs> and the rabbis went further. They said, they're mentioned favorably because never did a perfumed bride emerge from their homes. And when they marry a woman from a different place, they stipulate with her that she will not perfume herself. So the cynics would not say that it is with the work of the ketoret that they perfume themselves. To fulfill that which is stated in the Torah, and again we quote the words relating to <coughs> the tribes of God and tribes of Reuben, and you should be naki, you should be clear before the Lord and before Israel. So it's crucial for a person to be able to appear clean, even if he has to restrict himself from doing what he might do. <clears throat> and I think all of this relates to this idea of chashad, of <clears throat> suspicion. We see that Rab Shimon Bar Yochai holds that one of the reasons why the Torah requires that pe'ah, be the corner of the field left unharvested for the poor. And it should be left at the end of the harvesting was because of hashad suspicion. If the owner of the field set aside an unharvested corner at the beginning or middle, the poor would come and take what is theirs before the end of harvesting. And people passing by might think that nothing was set aside for the poor. We also have another halakha to pre- prevent hashad. And that halakha is... That on Hanukkah, a person who lives on a corner and he has an entrance to his home on each side of the corner, that person has to light a Hanukkah at each door of the house. One facing, say he lives on the corner of, uh, of Avenue J and Ocean Parkway. One corner has to face Avenue J where there's a door and one corner has to face Ocean Parkway where there's a door. And the reason they say is so that someone shouldn't think that the owner of the house did not fulfill the commandment to light the menorah, on to light the Hanukkah on Hanukkah. Like we said, there's another another way of looking at it. There's another way we say called Marit Ayin. Marit Ayin is appearances. We know that today it's very common to use milk alternatives. We have almond milk, we have... Uh, Oat milk, we have all of these different milks that people use and non-dairy milk. But we can all remember, at least the older ones of us, when we went to a wedding or a bar mitzvah and they served coffee at the end, the coffee would be served in the non-dairy creamer uh, carton. And it was necessary to use the carton and you couldn't just serve it in the, in the, uh, in a, in a, in a, in a small pitcher. And the reason was that people shouldn't be hashash, that they're serving milk. Or no, it shouldn't be maritai and thinking that someone can serve milk and it's okay to serve milk at, at the end after a meat, meat, meat meal. We have a halakha from the Gemara. If someone was going to serve almond milk, he would have to serve the almonds. He would have to have the almonds surrounding the milk so people knew for sure that it was almond milk. We have other halakhot like this in the Gemara. We have another halacha, for example, if I'm walking in the rain on Shabbat and my, my shirt becomes very wet and I get home and the sun comes out, I can't go, at least in the old days when we had clotheslines, I can't go outside and hang my shirt on the clothesline 
because people might think that it's permitted to wash clothes on Shabbat and therefore to take the clothes and dry them. So these are the, these are the ideas behind Hashat, and this is the idea behind Marit Ayin. And the connection between the two is is a matter of some debate. One is on one way, one is on the other way, and for sure appearances matter. But we have to say, does does it matter to who? And again, we go back to the Pasuk, that we have to appear clean in front of Hashem, and we have to appear clean in front of the people. It's crucial to be able to appear clean in front of both. We see many times that Moshe was accused of things. You know, I remember there's a, the story that, that, that we're told in the Gemara, that when Moshe Rabbeinu, he would leave his tent early, they would say, ah, he had a fight with his wife. And if he would leave his tent late, they would say, ah, he's planning to do something to us. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, we're learning, who devoted his whole life to Hashem, who should have been beyond any level of suspicion, goes so far to try to prevent, prevent suspicion from the people. <clears throat> we see that the Khatam Sofer goes so far as to say that he was troubled throughout his lifetime by the challenge of the command, you shall be innocent in the eyes of God and Israel. And he added that it was far easier to fulfill the first half of the command to be clean in the eyes of Hashem than the second to be clean in the eyes of Israel. Indeed, the Khatam Sofer wondered if it was possible for anyone to fulfill in its entirety this mitzvah. And he said that perhaps this is what Shlomo HaMelech meant in Kohelet when he said there is not a righteous man on earth who only does what is right and who never sins. This concept Vehitem Nekiim is very, very difficult, is not so easy to do. And I always wondered, is there a fine line? Is there a fine line that we have to walk when it comes to it? And I think there is a fine line. Now, sometimes we could say that Hashem protects us, but we always have to be aware of what the people might do, the people might say. There's a story told of Rav Sonnenfeld. A lady came to her rabbi in Europe Europe and said, can you please send money to Rav Sonnenfeld so that he should pray for me? And so the rabbi took her money, put it in an envelope, sent it special uh, mail to Rav Sonnenfeld. And uh, a couple of weeks later... The lady's husband comes to the rabbi and says, did you take money from my wife? You know, you can't take money from a person's wife without the husband's permission. I want that money back. And the rabbi said, okay, you know, I'll give you the money from my own personal money. And as he sat down, he was looking at the mail. There was a letter from Rav Sonnenfeld. And he opened the letter and the rabbi said, I heard you said to me, the woman gave you the money, but I wasn't sure if her husband gave permission. So I'm praying for her no matter what, but I'm sending the money back to you just in case. Unbelievable. Rav Alkabetz, the author of the Chadodi, asks a question. It says, how far do we have to go to not be chashash, someone not to be chashad against us? How far do we have to go to prevent Maritain? What do we have to do? And he asks a question. He says, look at Boaz. Boaz is going to go ahead and marry Ruth HaMoaviyah. And we see that the people talked about him, not only then, but for generations, even to the time of David HaMelech. So isn't he going against what's, what, what, what the rabbis are saying? Isn't he not appearing clean in the eyes of the people? And Rav Alkavad's answers that we have to remember that Boaz went to the court, to the court, to the Sanhedrin, to the court sitting in those days. 
And he went to the rabbis and they approved. And if the court approved and the rabbis approved, then we don't have to worry what the gospers are going to say. So when I say there's a fine line, there's a fine line. And there's no question. The gossiper, he's someone who judges negatively. And we have a mitzvah that a person has to judge his other his friend. And this person is subject to punishment because there's no such thing as freedom of speech. But we have to be naki first to Hashem, then to people. We have to try to protect the people, especially the rabbi. He's in the public arena. He has to try to be beyond suspicion. And we realize it's almost impossible from the words of the Khatam Sofer. And it's really on us to judge favorably and to realize how damaging our gossip could be. We have to do our best not to put a stumbling block because, you know, sometimes when we do these actions, it's us putting a stumbling block that some fool is going to trip over. We see Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu himself. He, he, he comes from heaven. Hashem tells him, B'nai Sidael, worshiping the Egel. And he brings the, the tablets with him, the Luchot with him. If he was going to destroy them, why not leave them? If he was going to destroy them, why wait until he gets down to the bottom of the mountain? But he only sees, only when he sees the people are dancing around the calf and doing the things they're doing, does he, does he, does he smash the tablets? It's unbelievable. Hashem tells him the people are doing this and he has to still see with his own eyes. We have to be very, very careful, very, very careful. Pikude may be an unnecessary in accounting, but it's an incredible, incredible lesson to all of us how crucial it is to do an accounting, how crucial it is to do the right accounting. I, I want to conclude with two stories. And these stories really take us into this idea of accounting, separate of this idea of Hashad and Marid Ayin. And I'm going to tell you, so the bottom line from, from this is, Yes, I think if someone has to go to the restroom and they have to stop in front of Burger King to go into the restroom, they should go into the restroom and person should not suspect them because they have to assume there's a reason he's going into Burger King. No one should be chashad that he's going to eat the hamburger and no one should have marit ayin that it's permissible to go eat in Burger King. We know better. Although I remember a story that Raymond Beta told around 1990, he said a chazan came from from uh, from Syria. And one day they see him sitting in the window of Caravel and he's eating a steak. And they run in and say, what are you doing? You're eating treif, you're eating not kosher meat. How could you do this? And the man says, what do you mean I'm eating not kosher meat? How could the restaurant not be kosher? And they say, no, you can't eat meat. You can't eat meat. It's not kosher. And he says, I don't understand. The president of the shul is in the back He's having a bagel with cream cheese and the vice president of the shul is having a tuna sandwich. And these are the days when we, we didn't do what we were supposed to and we were still eating in, in, in places probably we shouldn't have eaten in. But this really is the problem of Marit Ayin. This poor guy thought, look at all these important people. They're eating in this restaurant. How could they eat in a restaurant that's not kosher? And therefore he ordered a steak. And this shows really what Marit Ayin could do. But there's a difference between eating in the restaurant and just going to the bathroom in the restaurant. And I think that that's, that's the bottom line. Let's go back to this idea also of accounting. Accounting. The, the, the perasha begins, Ele Pikude. These are the accounts. 
These are the accounts. And the Ora Chaim HaKadosh writes, the word Ele comes to exclude any other counting of man, for the counting of man is limited, whereas the counting of the Mishkan was for all eternity. For there in the Mishkan dwelled Hashem, the God of the world. And now the question is, what does the Orachim mean? Why is only the accounting for this Kiddushah something that's, 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 that's forever, while all other accountings are not? And I saw a beautiful story posted by Rabbi Yonatan Halevi. And he says he was reading this Orachim and he was very confused. And then he remembered a story that we've told about Dan Yitzchak Abarbanel. Dan Yitzchak Abarbanel, who we simply refer to as Abarbanel after his commentary on the Chumash, he was a very close friend of the King of Spain. This is right before, in the years before, right leading up to the expulsion in 1492. The rabbi lived from 1437 to 1508, and I remember he writes later on that he wishes he had never been the treasurer to the kings of Spain and the kings of Portugal. In any event, he was very close to the king of Spain. He was his trusted treasurer. He was the treasurer for the government of Spain. And the other ministers were very jealous of this Jew that was so close to the king, and they made it known. But there was one minister, the minister of the exterior, who hated Rav Yitzchak Abarbanel with with tremendous, Dan Yitzchak Abarbanel, with tremendous, tremendous hatred. He had a passion in his hatred. And taking his lead, the other ministers went to the king to try to make him doubt the loyalty of Dan Yitzchak. They told the king that he should instruct Abarbanel to make an exact accounting of all of his possessions, all of his wealth reported to the king. So the king summoned Abarbanel and he commanded him to submit to him a precise account of all his possessions, Abarbanel returned and said, very simply, he pulled out a notebook and said, Your Majesty, my wealth consists of 700,000 gold ducats. And the ministers met again with the king and showed him what a mockery the Abarbanel made of him. Your Majesty, his orchids and his gardens alone are worth almost double this amount. How could it be that he could say that this is what he's worth? And they brought an expert who was just looking at was known of Abarbanel's estate and his possessions. And just that was worth four times what Abarbanel had claimed. And like we read in the Megillat Esther, and the king became very angry, and his anger burned within him. Another incident came about that angered the king enough to act on his wrath. There were certain top secret documents that only the king and Abarbanel knew their content. But the minister of the exterior and his hatred of Abarbanel bribed the servant of Abarbanel. And he asked him to steal the papers for him to read, and then he would return them. And the, the servant did. He took the money, he brought the papers, he put the papers back. No one would know the better. And the minister mentioned to the king some of the details, and the king asked how he knew of such things. And the minister of the exterior said, of course, from Dan Yitzhak, your Jew friend. And the king became very angry. And he decided if this Dan Yitzchak is doing this and not revealing his money and doing this and revealing the secrets of the king, he needs to be killed. But he was worried. Dan Yitzchak was loved by the people. He had made Spain flourish. As the treasurer of the government, he had done many, many things to make 
the country successful. And he knew if he killed him outright, the people would be very upset because he was so important to the people. So he wanted to kill him in a very secret way. He remembered that on the outskirts of the city, there was a brick factory. And there was a huge kiln in the brick factory. And this kiln burned day and night. He would have him killed there. No one would know that the king was behind it. So the king summoned Don Yitzchak to his chambers again. He told him he had a secret letter that had to be delivered to the owner of the brick factory immediately. And he couldn't trust anyone to do it. Barvenel, who was a faithful servant to the king, readily agreed to deliver the letter. It was sealed with the special seal of the king. Little did he know the contents of the letter. It was a secret message to the owner of the factory. And it was written immediately upon receiving this letter without any questions. Take the man who delivered the letter. Take this man and cast him into the fiery furnace to his death. And it was signed and sealed by the king of Spain. So the Barbanel got together his chariot. He ordered the quote-unquote loyal servant to take him to the factory as soon as possible. And that morning early they left the city. And as they were driving into the city, they were on the road and they were passing by a village. And a man is standing outside on the road leading to the village. And he sees the, 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 the wagon, the, the chariot coming towards him. And he flags it down. And Abarbanel sees the man and he tells his servant to stop. And he asks the man, what's wrong? And he says, oh, a miracle that you're here, Don Yitzchak. My wife gave birth. Today is the Brit Milah. All the people in the house waiting for the Brit Milah. But the Mohel, he's fallen ill and he can't come to circumcise the child. So I thought maybe I would find someone on the road who could help. And Hashem made a miracle and here you are. You are here. Please come and help me. And Abarbanel thought, he says, I have a problem. I'm supposed to deliver this letter on behalf of the king. But at the same time, I have the mitzvah of the king of kings. Uh, you know what? We're already on the road. We're not far from the brick factory. So he handed the letter to his loyal servant and told the servant to quickly bring it to the brick factory. Don't stop for anything. And when he's done, come back to the town. Gave him the address to pick him up. And so Dan Yitzchak got out of the, 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 the wagon, out of the chariot, walked into the town with the man so he wouldn't delay his servant from going to the brick factory. And Dan Yitzchak was the mohel. He circumcised the baby after they asked him to join for the feast and for Birkat Amazon, And when they all sat down, Dan Yitzchak, he gave a beautiful sermon to the crowd who had gathered there. And then Abarbanel looked outside. Half the day was gone and the servant wasn't back. It was impossible. And the sun was starting to go down the other way. So he asked the owner of the house to please allow him to use a horse and a wagon. So they got him a horse and a wagon and he quickly drove to the brick factory. And he got to the brick factory and how surprised he was and terrified to hear that the owner fulfilled the secret command of the king and he cast his servant into the fire to burn. The owner added and said, before he died, he screamed out and said, 
that he was deserving of death, for he rebelled against his master and stole secret documents from him for the minister of the exterior. This was all news to Dan Yitzchak, but he realized that he was just saved from sure death. How? By fulfilling the mitzvah of Hashem and helping out the Yudim. Immediately he burst out in song and praise. The next morning, Abarbanel came before the king to tell him what happened. The king couldn't believe his eyes. He asked the rabbi, did you go to the brick factory as I commanded you? And Don Yitzchak said, I did. And he told him everything that happened. And he told him about the confession before the death of the servant. And the king realized that Don Yitzchak was truly a man of God. He, Hashem had saved his life. And immediately the king ordered that the minister of the exterior be hung. But the king said, Don Yitzchak, although I'm happy for you, I have one complaint. When I asked you many months ago to give me the sum of your possession, and you gave me a number that both you and I know is at best a fraction of your wealth. How could that be? And the rabbi smiled, and he took out the notebook from his pocket. And he says, Your Majesty, let me explain. Whatever worldly possessions I have, in a moment the king could seize them, and I would have nothing. All my life I have kept this notebook and it contains all the money I have given to charity. The reward for that is eternal and that is the only money I really own for not you or anyone else for that matter can ever take it away from me. The king was impressed. You are really an honest and upright man. There is no doubt in my mind that this is why you were saved from guaranteed death. Your enemies have fallen before you. You walk on the threshold. And this is what the Orachayim is coming to teach us. All our possessions, all our wealth, anything we think we could own. We could do whatever pikude, we could do whatever accountings we want. And they really not. Stocks can fall, jobs can be taken, anything can happen. We see the wheel of, of wealth, of success, and, and, and the opposite, it's constantly turning. But what can we account to ourselves, that which we did for others? The Siddhaka and the mitzvot, those are attached to us forever. It's crucial to remember this. I want to close with one other story. This is a story I heard from Ephraim Shapiro. He tells a story, the name of his father. And again, it's to show what an accounting can do, what we can do with what we have. The year was 1951. It was a Friday afternoon. He says, when my father, Arab Mordechai Shapiro, Zatzal was in Tel Aviv. He was walking on a wide boulevard, Allenby Street. He saw across the street a green wooden kiosk. He was intrigued by the person who was working behind the desk. He appeared to be an elderly Jew, and he gave the impression that he was constantly learning. He never stopped learning from a sefer in his hands, or what was placed in front of him. He was moving back and forth. If someone came over to buy something, he asked the person what he wanted, gave him the item, took the money, but never really stopped learning. And my father stood there for a while. He was so inspired by the sight, and he thought about walking over to him, but he didn't want to bother him. Eventually he did. <coughs> and as he made his way across the street, another young man made it to the elder store owner, and he asked him for a pack of cigarettes. The elderly man hesitated, not one bit. He looked at his watch. He saw it was 12.15. 
I'm sorry, the owner said. It's after chatzot. I don't sell cigarettes after chatzot on Friday. That was his policy. He was worried that if cigarettes were sold close to Shabbat, the customers might smoke and thereby break Shabbat. As soon as my father saw this, he realized this elderly Jew was someone unique. He went over to him, asked him his name, and was told, My name is Yankel Osh Senekro. He then asked my father for his name, and my father told him that he was Mordechai Shapiro. He was from America. America, said Yankel. Many years ago, I knew a young boy by the name of Arkala Svislester. And I heard that he went to America. Have you heard of Arkala Svisletzer? Whatever became of him? Funny, you know, imagine, you know, someone who came to America. But immediately my father knew. This was none other than the greater of Aharon Cutler. My father began describing the remarkable, reflect, remarkable effects Rev. Aaron already had on American Jewry. And so my father said to him, how do you know him? What made you ask me about him? So the man went on to explain. Decades ago, I was a butcher in Minsk. And I wasn't able to learn exactly as much as I wanted to because I was busy in my butcher shop. But I made up that for every kilo of meat that I sell, I would put a small coin, say a penny, in a jar a coin that always seems inconsequential. And over the years, I sold thousands upon thousands of kilos of meat, and therefore I accumulated thousands upon thousands of coins. They were in a number of jars, and I placed them in a wagon. And then I went, and I brought it through the streets to the local cheder, to the school where all the Jewish boys would study. I told the head of the cheder, here are thousands and thousands, ten thousands of coins. With this, I'd like you to send a couple of students to study at the great yeshiva of Slobodka. And one of the two boys that, was, that went was Arkele Svisletzer. My father stared at this elderly Jew who was in part responsible for what became of the great Rav Aaron Cutler. His coins added up little by little, and look how it affected the world. Many years later, one of the great leading figures in America Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Zechat Sadiq Levracha, went to visit my parents in Miami. On this particular visit, my father retold the story of Archelaus this Lester to Rav Yaakov. Rav Yaakov smiled and said, yes, yes, that's exactly how the story goes. And I know. And my father said, how do you know? He says, because I was the other boy. Rav Aharon, Rav Yaakov, world jewelry was changed because of Yankel, Ochsenkro and the coins that he gave. We must believe that the small handfuls of actions, the small coins, we may not account, but someone's accounting and they affect the world forever. Have a great week. Please join us next week for another edition of Simplifying the Sword.